Welcome to the First Mass Podcast. It's Palm Sunday, and we join Pastor Paul as he speaks about a Palm Sunday faith. Let's listen in. Uh, I, I admitted last week, I admitted that Palm Sunday, it's kind of an easy day to be the preacher. Palm Sunday and Easter, like there's one story for these days, right? And you go, there, we have some options, I suppose. Uh, but if I was preaching today from the book of Jeremiah, you would be a little disappointed, right? You would be, you would be wondering what was wrong with me if I didn't actually look at the calendar before we got to church today. And, and so really, really, there wasn't a lot of mystery when you came in this morning as to what I would be preaching. And, and you know, we have expectations to meet. Preachers have expectations on us on, on a day like Palm Sunday. We, we know what is required of us. And so here you go. This is hopefully what you expect. This is the story, Matthew 21. And, and uh, really, through the course of this week, Every day has, has its own thing, right? I mean, on, on Thursday, uh, at the prayer walk, we, we take communion, we wash feet, we, we go through the, the process of the week, just like Jesus on Thursday was washing his disciples' feet and serving the Last Supper for the first time. On, on Friday, we'll show up, and, and this week, we kind of, we know that Friday is coming, and Friday, it's called Good Friday. We don't look forward to it. We don't, we don't really celebrate and wave palm branches on Friday, do we? Uh, Friday is a day to get through, and, uh, and so we, we will get to Friday, and we will get through Friday, and then Saturday is kind of this silent day, this day of, of nothing, which is kind of ironic because when you're in a church on Saturday before Easter, it's the busiest Saturday of the year. Uh, but it's this day of, of quiet waiting. And then, and then we're getting there. We're getting there. And we'll look forward to what, what happens next Sunday, because next Sunday is really our day. Um, and, and so we, we pull ourselves through the, the agony of this week. We pull ourselves through Jesus' Jesus's high highs and then his descension into the lowest of lows on, on Friday. And really, we, we can find ourselves in this week. We can all find ourselves. It doesn't matter where you are in life. It doesn't matter what the current events are that you are facing. We all find ourselves in the course of this week. Some of us come today on the highest of highs, uh, celebrating, partying, waving palm branches, and dancing in the streets. Uh, some of us find ourselves on Friday, dragging through. Uh, hardly able to, to look at ourselves in the mirror. And, and so over the course of this week, I'm, I'm just planning on, on reading the story each day. I'm, I'm planning on, on looking today at what a, what a Palm Sunday faith looks like. What does it look like to live a faith of this day? And, and what are the good things about living a faith of this day? And, and what, what may be we don't do if we only live in Palm Sunday. And, and then on Friday, we'll be looking at, at Good Friday and what happens on Good Friday and how our faith is shaped by Good Friday and what happens if we get stuck in Good Friday. Because we are, we are Easter people. We are Easter people. We are people who live in the light of resurrection. And so next Sunday, we'll be looking at an Easter faith 
and, and how, how we live an Easter faith. And so it begins on, on Sunday, on Triumph and Hosanna Sunday, Palm Sunday. Here we are. And the story is familiar to you. It's, uh, it's found in Matthew's gospel in chapter 21. It's, it's brief. It's just 11 verses. And, and it begins with, with Jesus seeing what was ahead. And not just, not just like knowing kind of maybe what was ahead. But Jesus sees very clearly what's ahead. And, and he, he, tell, he gives his, his disciples some instructions to make this day happen. So follow along with me, if you will, in Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 through 11. It, Matthew tells us, As Jesus and the disciples approached Jerusalem, they came to the town of Bethpage on the Mount of Olives. Jesus sent two of them on ahead. Go into the village over there, he said. As soon as you enter it, you will see a donkey tied there with its colt beside it. Untie them and bring them back to me. I read a long article this week about the, the question, did Jesus somehow ride two donkeys on the day? That seemed a little bit in the weeds for today. But uh, So verse 3, if anyone asks you what you are doing, just say the Lord, ha- the Lord needs them, and he will immediately let you take them. Uh, this took place to fulfill the prophecy that said, tell the people of Israel, look, your king is coming to you. He is humble, riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey's colt. The two disciples did as Jesus commanded. They brought the donkey and the colt to him and threw their garments over the colt, and he sat on it. Verse 8, most of the crowd spread their garments on the road ahead of him, And the others cut branches from trees and spread them on the road. Jesus was in the center of the procession. And the people all around him were shouting, Praise God for the Son of David! Blessing on the one who comes in the name of the Lord! Praise God in the highest heaven! The entire city of Jerusalem was in an uproar as he entered. Who is this? they asked. And the crowds replied, It's Jesus the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Well, believe it or not, triumphal entries were not completely uncommon in the ancient world. This is a phenomenon that happened when, when conquering kings went out to conquer and then returned home having conquered something. And so a, a, a conquering king, a hero from war, would arrive back to his hometown or arrive at a town as he was headed back home after having won in battle. And he, he would line up all of his, his army and then he would put in front of him, just in front of him, some animals that he was planning on sacrificing in the temple as he arrived at the temple in the city. And then he would be riding on a war horse or maybe on the, the shoulders of, of slaves that carried him on a litter and, and then behind him would be the spoils of war, slaves that he had captured and, and gold or treasure that he had taken as booty. And he would, he, would run, he would come through the city. People would come out of their, ha- out of their houses, line up on the streets and, and shout at, at the king and, and celebrate this hero. And, and there are examples of this in Scripture. In the Old Testament, you can kind of read in between the lines and see this happening. In, in 1 Samuel, it happens uh, 
Saul is, is marching back into, uh, or back, back home after defeating some Philistines, and, and Saul gets upset because as he is processing the, the triumphant king, there are women saying, Saul's killed his thousands, but David's killed his tens of thousands. And, and so there, there's a story of it. There, there, it might be kind of like this when David returned uh, with the Ark of the Covenant and when he had taken it back and, and he was dancing and leaping and carrying on in an undignified way and his wife, uh, who was Samuel, or Saul's uh, daughter, said that was a pretty impressive display. She mocked him. Uh, for it. So those are some examples we might see in the Old Testament. There's actually a pretty good example in the movie Gladiator. Uh, It's an old one. It's all CGI, um, but it's cool. And so uh, I don't recommend the movie, but that scene is like maybe somewhat historically accurate, like maybe, I don't know. The, The interesting thing in that though is as it's happening, some of the enemies of the king uh, say, he comes to us like a conquering king, but what has he done? And so, I mean, it's obviously intended to be a triumphal entry scene in, in that movie uh, is a historical curiosity. So it, this is just a big time ego trip for the king who does this, right? This is, this is patting the ego of somebody who's already done pretty well for himself. And so when this, this isn't something that probably had happened in Jerusalem for, for years and years and years, uh, except for by people maybe who, who pretended to be the Messiah, the king that, that the Jews were waiting for. Uh, this, is, this is, you know, arriving in, in town on, on a war horse dressed in shining armor, like that's, that's just patting someone up someone patting himself on the back, right? Uh, and so the, the disciples had an idea of what this might be like when, when the day began, right? When, when the day begins and Jesus says, hey, go, go get that donkey and ride it into town, the disciples, they maybe knew a little bit of what a, a triumphal entry looked like. They knew what this type of procession was. And the disciples may have had in their mind the way their, their own status would, would rise as the people who were closest to Jesus. And so it's, it's no sweat off the disciples' back if, if a crowd gathers and if a crowd's saying, wow, this Jesus guy's really cool and, and suddenly all of the people in the crowd want to get as close to Jesus as they can and the disciples happen to be some of the gatekeepers, you know, that's an okay position for the disciples to be in in their own minds. And so Jesus comes, and, and he comes to Jerusalem, but then Matthew tells us that he comes fulfilling this prophecy uh, from, from the book of Isaiah, which says, Behold, your king comes humbly riding on a donkey. See, Jesus is, is intentionally striking a different chord than the chord that is being struck by the conquering emperors that, that come in riding on war horses. Right, the, Jesus. Jesus is not trying to do exactly what what Caesar is trying to do when he goes out from Rome, conquers, and then comes back in with his own parade. Uh, Jesus is is trying to to set up a contrast between him and the Roman warriors. 
Humble is not a word that the Roman warriors wanted associated with themselves. And, and their processions were shows of strength. And Jesus shows up on a donkey. A donkey is a pack animal, right? A donkey, a donkey is a symbol of peace. It's a, a donkey, a donkey is a donkey. Uh, it's, um, <laughs> thank you. Yeah. Thanks, Dick. Uh, it's not part of the military machine of the first century, right? It's, uh, it's a pack animal. It's just, it's for carrying stuff. And, and so in the Roman versions of these parades, um, the, the, the Roman king would, would have ridden uh, something more impressive. But then he, he also, I, I mentioned, he kind of comes in the middle of the procession, right? Just like Jesus comes in the middle of the procession, as Matthew tells us. He comes in the middle of the procession. In the, in the Roman version, though, the, the interesting piece of it is that right in front of the king would, would always come the animals to be sacrificed. The first stop on the way into the city is at the temple. And, and the, the Roman king wants to, wants to make a sacrifice to the God who has given them success in war. And so the, the first stop is, is at the temple with the sacrifices in front of them. And, and uh, it's just interesting to me then that Jesus comes in the middle of the procession, but he, and he arrives at the temple. That, that's his destination, Matthew tells us. He, he shows up at the temple. That's the next place he is after all of this hullabaloo. And, and so Jesus arrives at the temple, not with a flock of animals to, to sacrifice at the temple, but very clearly we know what Jesus is planning for this week. We, we know that Jesus arrives. He's, he's not coming as a conquering king. He is coming as the sacrifice, as the one who is offering himself to God on behalf of the people. It's a very different, it's a di- very different picture than what the, what the Romans had in mind. And he, he's celebrated. He's celebrated as the king. But he, he knows, he knows he is going to present himself at the temple. And maybe Jesus' choice of animals should have given a little caution to the crowds that gathered that day. Maybe they should have been corrected just a little bit about what they were hoping for out of, out of Jesus. Because in those days, Jerusalem was filled with people who were looking for a king, who were looking for the king that would, would fulfill the prophecies of the Old Testament, that a king like David would come back, that God's people would be a, an independent nation, no longer occupied by the Romans, but, but completely free, and, and that they would be a light to the world. They, they, would, they would represent God on earth for, for all of all of creation and all of the other nations. And so when, when Jesus allows himself to be, to be processed into the city in this way, that's what's going on in the minds of the crowd. They, they believe without a shadow of a doubt that they have, have found the king that they have, have been looking for, the Messiah they had hoped for. And so there had to be some head-scratching when Jesus chooses, instead of a war horse, to come into the city on a donkey. Uh, there has to be a little bit of, 
little bit of wondering. And this, this passage really, it, it makes me curious. I, the thing, I'm curious about a couple of things in this passage, but one of the things I'm most curious about is just why Jesus allowed it to unfold the way he did. Why did, why did Jesus, Jesus understood the crowd's emotions. Jesus knew what the crowds were expecting. Jesus knew what the crowds were saying and and the power of their words. Um, They they were quoting from Psalm 118. Uh, Jesus understood what they meant. This is is king language. This is language of of someone who, who would set God's people free from the Romans. Jesus Jesus knew the minds of the people around him. And so it just, it makes me wonder, it makes me wonder why Jesus lets them use the language he does. Now, when, when we're looking at the uh, passage in the New Living Translation or many of the English translations, verse 9 is, is where we get the quotes from, from the Old Testament, the, the song that the people were singing or shouting. And it, it begins, praise God for the son of David. That's not a very good translation. Um, I love the New Living Translation. This is one, one spot where they miss. Uh, and if you look at the footnote or if you're looking at another English translation, you'll see uh, that word Hosanna, word that we've used in our worship this morning. Pastor Bill uh, alluded to it in his prayer, Hosanna. It's, uh, it's an interesting, it's a, it's a Hebrew word, actually. And so in, in uh, the book of Matthew, it's, it's recorded as just, Hosanna is, is like our best guess of how it would have been pronounced back then even. In, in the book of Matthew that was written originally in, in the Greek language, uh, it's just like a spelling out of the, of the Hebrew word. So it's like a Greekification of the, of the Hebrew word. The Hebrew word or words means like, oh, save us or save us now. Uh, save now your people, something, something to that effect. And this week, I've been kind of geeking out over, over the language of, of this day. Um, <laughs> I don't know if we have the endurance for the geekiness that we're about to endure. Uh, I just, I've been so curious what language was being used that day. Because the, the common language of the day was Aramaic. Jesus probably taught the majority of his teaching in Aramaic. That was, that was the everyday in and out, like, language at home, Aramaic. And, and so it's possible that the people were just using the everyday language, right? I mean, it's possible. But then uh, for the Jews, religious language was Hebrew. They, they still used the, the, what we call the Old Testament in Hebrew. It was originally written in Hebrew. And so maybe they were using like Hebrew as sort of national identity language. This is a religious, a religious quote that they're, they're doing right here from the book of Psalms. That, and, and they probably knew it in Hebrew originally. But then Greek, like Matthew recorded it in Greek. So, uh, and Greek is, is the language of Rome. Maybe the people were, were quoting, there was a, a translation of the Old Testament into Greek. And it appears as though Matthew kind of depends on that. Old Testament in Greek, when he writes Old Testament passages in Greek, including Psalm 118 here. And, and so it's possible that the crowds were like, 
firing a shot over the bow of the Romans, saying, we're going to use your language and we're going to declare our own king, uh, which is just kind of fascinating to me. Sorry, that was super geeky. The, Jesus understood, though, the importance of the, of the words being used. This idea of, of Hosanna, it's, it's a refrain for people who are expecting a king. And, and Jesus allowed people to celebrate himself. Jesus allows people to celebrate him even if, if their celebration doesn't fit with who Jesus is intending to be. And that's really what strikes me from this passage. The people throw a party for a king, a conquering king. Jesus never intended to be a conquering king. Later in the week, when somebody tries to take up arms on behalf of Jesus, Jesus says, put that away. People who live by the sword die by the sword. And, and, and so Jesus knew what he was doing. He understood what the, the people were doing. He understood what the people thought. But, but Jesus, all the while, he knew that this would not be the first time, or the last time this week, that he would be paraded through the, the streets of Jerusalem. Because come Friday, Jesus is going to be paraded again. He's going to be brought through the city carrying his cross, a beaten and bloodied mess, the visible representation of his total defeat by the Roman Empire and by the Jewish religious leaders who didn't want him to be their king. And so on Friday, Jesus, instead of, instead of calling the shots and leading the way, Jesus will be led as a captive. He, he's no longer a champion when we get to Friday. On Friday, there, there is kingly imagery Right? There's a purple robe on Friday. There's a, there's a crown on Friday, but it's a crown of thorns, and the purple robe, it's mockery. It, it is in no way people saying, yes, here is Jesus to be celebrated. It's nothing, Friday is nothing like the, the, the clothing spread out on the, on the streets and the, the palm branches making a way for Jesus in reverence. And so while the, the crowds identified Jesus on Palm Sunday as this prophet from Nazareth, right? The last, the last words, who is it? It's Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth. We understand that what the crowds really meant was, it's Jesus who's going to be king one day. It's Jesus who's going to kick the Romans out of Jerusalem. And the events of, of the week that get us to Good Friday demonstrate that what the people thought they were doing on, on Palm Sunday. It, was, it wasn't about celebrating a prophet. It was about bringing a king to town. But Jesus, he refused to be what the people wanted him to be. He refused to take over. He refused to show force. And Jesus refused to be co-opted by the misunderstandings of the crowd. 
there, the, the connection between Palm Sunday and Good Friday is that for, for anyone who would make Jesus into something he never claimed to be, both days are pretty disappointing. Uh, we, we hear it in Peter's words. On the way to Jerusalem, before, before he ever got there, Jesus said, I'm going to Jerusalem, I'm going to be killed. And Peter rebuked Jesus. He said, you will never die. <laughs> because, because Peter was celebrating Jesus. Peter, Peter saw what Jesus could be uh, on Palm Sunday. A king riding into town. Peter knew that he, he should have gone to the palace after visiting the temple. <laughs> he should have found his new, his new digs in, in the seats of power, right? Not back to Bethany. He, he should have been welcomed by the important people in Jerusalem, not, not by the poor. And, and so Thursday's, or, uh, Sunday, Palm Sunday is kind of disappointing to, to Peter, but man, Friday is is a real letdown. Uh, the, the Messiah that they had waited could never die. And that's exactly why Peter rebukes Jesus, because Jesus admitted he was going to die. And so in, in both days, people who don't understand what they are doing declare victory. On Sunday, people claim victory for Jesus. Here he is. Worship him as a king. Put him on high. And on Friday, victory is claimed over Jesus. They parade him to, to demonstrate his complete and total defeat. And so Sunday is a day when, when Jesus' disciples made some mistakes. Uh, they, they misunderstood who, who Jesus was and unfortunately, the mistakes that Jesus' followers made on Palm Sunday are still being made by Christians today. These are, these are the mistakes of, of making Jesus fit our mold for Jesus. Uh, we, we kind of make Jesus pretty plastic. He's like Plato. He goes into whatever mold we want Jesus to make. <laughs> we talk about my Jesus my Jesus doesn't exist. <laughs> Jesus of the Bible exists. We don't, we don't get to mold Jesus into what we want Jesus to be. Uh, and so when we don't understand Jesus as he presents himself in Scripture, we turn Jesus into whatever, whatever is convenient for us to turn Jesus into. And most devastatingly, we claim victory. We claim victory the Sunday before Jesus goes to Good Friday and the cross. We claim victory without accepting the humility of Holy Week. This is, this is what I think a Palm Sunday faith is. It's a faith that smiles when things are good and says, ain't God good? <laughs> but it's a faith that when, when things don't go well, it, it smiles as it ignores what is wrong and broken and dark and evil, and it says, ain't God good? 
It's faith in victory, but it's a false victory because it's never actually faced any adversity. Christian victory is, is Easter faith. <clears throat> a faith that's fought through Good Friday. There are parts of Palm Sunday faith that are good. It, it is right and good to praise the Lord always. God is always good and there is always a reason to praise God. But authentic Christian faith isn't, isn't afraid to say, I just don't understand why it has to be so hard sometimes. Jesus' followers who follow him to the end admit that they have been near defeat more times than they care to admit. Jesus' followers, we weep with those who weep. We mourn with those who mourn. Because we know that our Savior is still strong in the valley of the shadow of death. And so, today we, we began our service in victory, waving palm branches. We, we go now to the table. We, we will end our service with the meal that comes through the, the hard-fought faith of this week. We, we come to the table to, to remember that Jesus allows himself to be celebrated. But he allows himself to be celebrated by those who are willing to walk with him in humility. To, to the dark moments. And, and so, uh, we, we are going to partake of communion. Before we're served, let me just remind you that we will be receiving bread and juice, emblems of Jesus' broken body and shed blood. Uh, this is a meal that is for Jesus' followers. And so we invite anybody who, who would want to follow Jesus to take this meal. To remember that it, it points directly to what Jesus did on Friday his body on the cross, his blood poured out for us. But it also reminds us that Jesus didn't finish all that he came to do. And he is coming again. And he will set all things right when he does. We remember as we come to this meal that we come as one. We come as one with all of our brothers and sisters in Christ. Not just in this place, but Everywhere they're celebrating Jesus, <laughs> we are one. And, and, and we come remembering that there is but one host. Jesus invites us to his table. Thanks for joining us in the First NAS podcast. We hope to see you in person next Sunday. It's Easter and we're ready to celebrate with you and our living God.